0: So let us read now the word of the Lord. This great song, this great prayer attributed to David, who at the time was king. It says this, Happy is the one who is considerate of the poor. In your translation, you may see blessed. That's the more historic way of translating that word. Blessed is the one who is considerate of the poor. Or you could say the weak, the suffering, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the powerless. Blessed is the one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him. He will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. I said, Lord, be gracious to me, your translation may say. Have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak maliciously about me. When will he die, they say, and when will he be forgotten? When one of them comes to visit, he speaks deceitfully. He stores up evil in his heart, and then he goes out and talks. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him, they say, and he won't rise again from where he lies. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, who sat at my table, who dined with me, even he has raised his heel against me. But you, Lord, be gracious, have mercy on me. And raise me up, then I will repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Okay, so the structure of this psalm is important. What we have kind of in the middle there, uh, verses 4 to 9, gives us sort of the context in which this psalm, this song, this prayer came to life. And then what I think we have at the beginning and at the end is sort of post-context or post-suffering The ruminations the reflections of David the psalmist okay so let's just take a moment and, and look again at that middle context I said Lord have mercy on me or be gracious to me now when did he pray that he seems to have prayed that while he was literally on his deathbed so picture David, I think in the time of his kingship, lying in his royal uh, chambers, sick, ill. We don't know exactly what he was suffering at the time or, or how he was suffering, but it did not seem as if he was going to survive. So um, picture your favorite show or movie in which a king is lying on his deathbed, and all his political enemies are foaming at the mouth. (laughs) Oh, finally, King David will be gone. Think of what we can now take for our own. But they come into his chambers, and they eloquently speak for his goodwill, and (laughs) we pray you life, good sir, (laughs) no, and then they walk out, and they scheme in the back channels in the chambers of the castle. This is, this is what's going on here. And David is left alone in his sickness and his misery. And he hears about these cruel and wretched opponents of his, speaking falsehood and lying, perhaps even claiming he's already died, as they grab for power. That's the context. So imagine it. And he cries out to the Lord and says, Have mercy on me, God. For I have sinned against you. Now, he's not claiming, and this is going to be important in a second, we'll talk about this, that his sickness is because of his sin. What he's saying is, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I don't claim to be a perfect man, I don't claim to be innocent. I've already confessed to you, Lord, and through my confession, I can come near to you. I'm not pretending. There's no pretense in me, Lord. You are the true king, and I don't come into your chambers pretending, saying one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. I am coming to you fully aware of my sin, and it's only because of your mercy and grace that I stand before you and make my plea to heal me, Lord. You are my king, God. Yes, I am king of Israel, but you are my king, And I come surrendered and confessing and therefore free to ask of you your help. Not so of his enemies. So that's the context. Okay. Now let's get into the things he'll say around the context. And they all relate now to this idea of sickness and suffering. And we all experience sickness and suffering we are all poor and weak and the question we always ask is why why does God allow this why would a good God all-powerful God the great physician the great healer why would he allow me to sit in pain and suffering sickness and weakness why Because we have this psalm, I think God is actually wanting to teach us how to pray in those moments. Don't don't just turn to God after they're over. Don't turn away from Him, away from God in the midst of them, but actually bring all of it into His face before His throne. And Psalm 41 teaches us how to do that. Why? Why? Why would he allow this? Now, I want to give you the answer up front, <laughs> because I, in case you fall asleep. I want to give you the answer up front. It's okay. It's very hot days. Um, the answer is, at the end of the psalm, to set me, verse 12, second half of the verse, to set me in the Lord's presence forever. That's why God allows suffering and pain and illness, because somehow, some way, we are brought into closer proximity, awareness, and the presence of the Lord through pain and suffering, if we allow God, if we allow Him. So I'll just start with one little story that reminded me of this this week, uh, I love my wife, I have a great relationship with my wife, I talk to my wife, I feel near to my wife when times are good, but something happens when I suffer pain that draws me so close to her that I actually delight in my suffering. And she knows this, I have chronic issues with kidney stones. I've probably had 20 kidney stones in my life. The first one was when I was, I think, got 21 years old. And at that point, I didn't know what was going on. I was just curled up in the fetal position. My parents raced me to the hospital, didn't know what was going on. Turns out my body is a gem factory. (laughs) And I can create these beautiful crystals just by not drinking water and drinking, yeah, a little too much sodium, apparently, in the diet. But, you know, don't worry about that. Okay, so I have this problem. And then I meet Allie, and I uh, continue to have this problem. And and yet now I have with me my great delight in my suffering. And she can tell you this. uh, Three or four times I've had to go to the hospital for these kidney stones. And the pain is intense. Um, Like very intense to the point where, you know, at times you cry things like, just take me, Lord, from this earth. This pain is too great. And I would sit in the uh, emergency room um, waiting for the drugs to kick in. And and in those moments, I would say this to Allie. I would say, I've never loved you more. (laughs) What a strange thing. Like there is this thing that happens in the suffering and the pain that drew me closer to Ali. I was never more thankful to have her in my life, to have her near to me, to have her presence. Um, And there's literally though nothing she could do besides be with me. And so that's an analogy or an illustration of what our relationship with God can be like in the pain and the suffering. Though it might be the most excruciating of pain, there's a delight to be found in the nearness and the presence of the Lord. Even if he doesn't remove that pain, remove that thorn in the flesh, you could be near to him. If you learn how to bring the fullness of your being to him and and don't hide. So that's where we're headed um, and, and let's get there. Look at verse one. So this is, again, part of the reflection that the psalmist is making. Happy or blessed is the one who is considerate of the poor and the weak. Verse 1. The poor and the weak. So we're not just talking about financially poor. In fact, that's probably not the focus here. But the poor in in every sense of it. Uh, The weak. Those who cannot help themselves is the idea. So the one who is considerate of, who considers and helps Those who cannot help themselves, uh, blessed or happy is that person. A great truth that the psalmist just throws out here. And he he throws it out for a number of reasons. Um, The first reason is actually connected to himself, um, which is so funny. So it's not by accident that when the psalms were um, sort of gathered together and organized, they're not necessarily put together chronologically that, they're put together sometime, somehow, we don't always know thematically. But <clears throat> Psalm 40 and 41, I think, are juxtaposed for this very reason. So look at Psalm 40, verse 17. I think we'll throw it on the screen here. Uh, it says this uh, The psalmist, again, crying out, <clears throat> I am oppressed and needy. I am poor. I am weak. May the Lord think of me, consider me. You are my helper and my deliverer, my God. Do not delay. Okay, so who is the poor? Who is the weak? Who is the needy? Psalm 41. Yes, it's those outside of the psalmist, but it's the psalmist himself. And so he says, I was once the needy, the poor, the weak, the one who couldn't help myself, and God was considerate of me. So this is why we should be considerate of others. You see that? So to be merciful to the weak is to be like God. This is David's cry. He's saying, we should all be like God, because again, he's reflected upon this experience, and now he's created a song for the people to sing, Blessed or happy are happier those who consider the poor because they are acting as God acts to us. I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful reminder. And then he's using that as a way to say we could cry that out in our moment of need. God, be considerate of me as I am considerate of others. So there's this sort of reciprocal thing that's happening. You're saying, God, I am one of your children because I am like you and when I I see those in need who can't help themselves, I help them, and it brings me joy because I'm like you, and please treat me as your child. So there's this circular argument happening here. It's this beautiful thing. Now, remember that the Psalms are what? The playlist of Jesus. So Jesus got his, you know, got iPod, I think we use phones now, but he's got his playlist on his phone, and he's... He's listening to the Psalms, that's what he listens to. So it shouldn't surprise us that similar words flow off of the lips of Jesus because he's been singing these songs his whole life. Is your mind gone there yet, students of the scripture? Turn, or we'll throw it on the screen, Matthew 5, two through 11. Matthew 5, two through 11. Did I put that in? I didn't put that in there, George. Did I put it in? No, George, put that in real quick. (laughs) And I'll turn there and I'll read it from here. And then that'll give us a chance to. Matthew chapter five, verses two through eleven. Now you probably have heard this before, many of you. And if you haven't, that's okay. You're gonna love what you what you hear here. This is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And this is what is called the Beatitudes. So this is important. In our text it says happy is, I don't particularly love that translation, but what he's trying to help you get past that very religious language, the translators. And blessed is, okay? So what you're going to see in the Beatitudes is blessed. So remember, he's just said blessed is the one who is considered of the weak. Look at this. Matthew 5, verse 2. Then Jesus began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Here it is. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Oh, it's one of my favorite jams, Jesus says, Psalm 41. And he's throwing it now in his speech of all speeches. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You can go on to read all the other ways in which we experience blessedness, in which we are blessed, in which we are made happy by being like God. And one of the huge ways reverberated through all Scripture is to have mercy because we have been shown mercy. Beautiful, beautiful reminder. Jesus tells us to live out Psalm 41. So in the same way uh, that Jesus would say, those who have been forgiven much, forgive much, right? Those who have been shown much mercy, will give much mercy. So reflecting upon the mercy and graciousness of God will be the thing that helps you become merciful and gracious. Those who do not reflect, do not remember the mercy and the grace of God will probably struggle to show mercy and grace to the poor, to the weak, to those who cannot help themselves. So that's the first thing. That is one of the lessons learned here through this pain and suffering. So, of course, there is purpose in the pain. Okay. Second thing I want to say. Notice how the psalmist has no problem sitting in his suffering, which is to say, don't deny the pain. Don't deny the pain. So I'm sitting in the hospital bed and you know of course i want to look tough and strong for my beautiful wife that would do me no good (laughs) to say and when she asks, how are you feeling you know it's all right (laughs) no don't deny it her love literally flows on the honesty of the pain so it is with god don't deny the pain don't deny how bad it hurts Don't deny all the various elements of the hurt. It's multifaceted, the hurt. So I was, Alan and I were helping some friends do some remodeling. They just bought a fixer upper and they had to basically rip out all the floors and all the wallpaper off the walls. And and so we brought the boys over and we just had like a demolition day. And if you need help with that, Grayson, my eight-year-old, loves that stuff. I mean he will just come and destroy things for you. And you can just sip lemonade and he I mean he is such a good worker. So I'm just offering him, he's available. My children are your children, your children are my children. So we just share and and Grayson's very good at demo. So <clears throat> we're over there and there is some very old uh, sort of vinyl flooring in the in the what was the kitchen area and And that was Grayson's job. And he's there with a chisel and a hammer. And for hours, he's chiseling off this first layer, which is the vinyl. And we finally get it off. And we peel it back. And then there's like another layer of some other substance that I didn't know what it was. And uh, I looked at my friend. I said, you want to take that off too? And he said, yeah, let's take that off too. So we take that layer off. We dig it off. We get that layer off. And then there's another layer underneath. He's like, you want that layer off? He's like, yeah, let me just probably take that layer off. And then by the end, he's like, let me just get my... Uh, saw and I'll cut through the board and then we rip the whole board up this is our suffering there are so many layers to our suffering that if we just sort of stop at exposing or peeling the first layer often we think that we fully lamented and that's this is a prayer of lament to God the pain that we've experienced If we stop at that first layer and sure, we could have recovered up that floor on top of that first layer, and it probably would have been okay, but not best. And God wants us to process our pain and our suffering in the best way, in the fullest way, so that the new foundation that He lays upon it can be as strong as possible. So, what part of your suffering have you not fully engaged? not fully expressed to God. You don't have to tell all your friends every level, but you need to tell God the pain. And this is what I love. Read, read again Psalm 41, five to nine, and look at all the, the layers that David peels back. Of course, there's the physical pain. I mean, he literally can't get out of his bed. He's on his deathbed. So there's physical pain, but that's just the surface. Look at all the other pain. My enemies, verse 5, speak maliciously about me. They say things like, when will he die and be forgotten? I mean, that's two layers. I mean, can you imagine your friends wondering, when's he going to die? And then saying, and his name be forgotten. They don't just want him to physically die. They want the memory of him to die out too. The pain that that would cause. These These are people I thought were my friend. Verse 6, when one of them comes to visit me, he speaks deceitfully, and he stores up evil in his heart, and then he goes out and he talks. So they're coming to me and lying to my face, deceiving, and then going out and reporting and probably telling rumors and probably laughing about my condition and probably explaining, I bet God's punishing him for something that we don't even know about. I bet he's done something real bad. I bet God has given it to him. The pain of that. Oh. These people who look me right in the eye and, and, and act as if they have my best interest and then they go and they lie about me. The layers are being peeled back. And then he brings to the Lord, he says, all who hate me whisper together about me. So not just my friends or the people I thought were my friends, but we got whole groups of people Who who are whispering about me, gossiping about me, wondering what I've done, assuming that I deserve this. Verse 8, something awful has overwhelmed him, they say. Something awful. The Hebrew word there is actually something filled with evil has overwhelmed him. And he won't rise again. No, no, he's not going to make it through this one. Joyfully proclaiming that. See the exclamation point? There's a joy in that. He won't rise again. And the layers. How, how could they hate me so much that they celebrate that I may not make it through this? <sighs> Even my friend the layers, even my friends. So now this is a whole new category, and now he's actually probably got somebody very specifically in mind, not just the other politicians that were around, but somebody who thought was a personal friend, someone whom I trusted, someone who'd babysat my kids, someone who I told my deepest, darkest secrets to, my friend who I ate bread with, shared a table with me, even, even they have raised their heel against me. See the layers of pain? And that last one's the worst, isn't it? When the people you thought were your close friends stab you in the back. Have you been there? See, it's not just the physical pain. It's everything else that comes with it. And there's layers to this, and we have to reveal the layers of it to the Lord because he wants to heal down to the foundation. Because... And this is the beautiful thing when Jesus says, I call you my friends. Even if all your friends desert you, they stab you in the back, they lie to your face, Jesus says, you have a friend in me. And I'll never do that. So we must sit in our weakness, we must not deny it and we must not fall into the trap of misinterpreting it. Now, this is where the verse four comes in. I said, Lord, be gracious to me, have mercy on me, heal me of my sin, for I have sinned against you. That's how you should read that. I I have already confessed to you, I've already prayed to you, so these rumors or these lies about me that are circulating, that my illness, that the evil thing that's overwhelmed me is because of my sin, I've already brought that to you, and I know you are gracious and merciful to forgive. So I know I'm not perfect, but that is not why I'm dying. The body dies. (laughs) Now, this is so common that scoffers or gossipers would see sickness, suffering, pain, poverty, and assume it's your fault. You did something to deserve that. In the physical realm or the spiritual realm. So you reap what you sow. And that is not the case. We live in a fallen and a broken world. And so there's any number of reasons why we might experience pain, suffering, poverty. Yes, it is true that at times God will use pain and suffering to help you nudge you out of a sinful pattern so there is times but that's not the primary in scripture reason for pain and suffering but it does seem to be the primary explanation that religious people give to pain and suffering that it's somehow God's punishment for our sin. And the psalmist is very clear here. That is not why he is experiencing pain and suffering, but probably the reason that the scoffers and the gossipers attribute to it. And for this reason, many people have read Psalm 41, and who immediately comes to mind? For students of the Scripture, Job. It's a whole book dedicated to this theme about a righteous man who is selected by God to experience pain and suffering to prove out the validity of his faith by taking from him all the good gifts God had given them, and yet he doesn't, in the end, turn from God. So the book of Job gets right at this idea. And so I've got one quote from Job, Job 31, 16 to 23. I'll read this, you'll you'll hear the familiarity. In Job it says this, "'If I have refused the wishes of the poor, "'or let the widow's eyes go blind, if I have eaten my few crumbs alone without letting the fatherless eat any of it. From, for from my youth, I raised him as his father. And since the day I was born, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone dying for lack of clothing or a needy person without a cloak, if he did not bless me while warming himself with the fleece from my sheep, If I ever cast my vote against a fatherless child when I saw that I had support in the city gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my back, this is Job, and my arm be pulled from its socket, for disaster from God terrifies me. And because of his majesty, I could not do these things. He's saying, I have considered the poor and the weak, the fatherless, the widow, I have been like God, for I am God's child. I have, out of fear of God, I have lived as God lives, with mercy and grace. And so these accusations that my pain and my suffering and my disease, the accusations that those are because of my lack of care for others and God is punishing me, these, those are utterly untrue, Job is saying, King David is saying. We can say. So be careful. It's so common to see pain, suffering, disability, and assume that somehow they're being punished by God. And it's just not the case most of the time. So, why then would He let me and want me to sit in my weakness if it isn't to punish me? The question goes. For what purpose? Remember what I said at the beginning. So that I might experience his presence in a way that I never have before. Well, that seems like a bad idea, God. Isn't there another way? Well, let me ask you. Do you cry out to God when things are great, when the bank account is full, when the body is clear and clean, when do you cry out to God? And do you think he doesn't know that? He desires relationship with you so deeply that he is willing to allow suffering to enter your life and his world so that you run and turn to him. And it's a hard truth, but that's how he works. Job started a righteous man He ended a righteous man, but his righteousness on the end was not the same as the righteousness on the beginning. King David started a man after God's own heart, and he ended a man after God's own heart. But the ending David is not the same David as the David before. This David started as a man of faith, young in my faith. I experienced suffering and pain and loss. I am not the same David I was before. And so I look at my suffering And I can honestly say thank you, because I know God in a way I didn't know before, not by denying the pain, but by peeling back the layers of disappointment, the dreams lost, the tears, the crying out, and knowing that God met me in that moment with a tenderness and a love and a power and a strength and a peace That honestly I didn't know before the suffering. So why does he allow it? Because he loves us. That's a hard gospel truth. And I might miss it if I don't embrace my pain. If I hide it. If I deny it. Or if I allow others to misinterpret it. Or allow myself to misinterpret it as somehow simply punishment from God. That's not why God allows suffering. Now, how do I know that, or how can I say that so confidently? Yes, I've got my own story, I've got Job's story, I've got King David's story, but that's not the place I go, or at least eventually get to. The place I go first is where we should always go first, to the story of all stories, which is the story of Jesus. Jesus' story, the gospel story, The message of life through suffering is the place to start. Because if it's true there, then it's got to be true every other place we see it. So Jesus literally lived out this psalm. Making him, as Hebrews says, the great high priest that can understand our suffering. So we don't serve a God or worship a God that knows nothing of suffering. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus and he lived the perfect life, but the perfect life is not a life void of suffering. In fact, the perfect life, if Jesus lived the perfect life, is a life full of suffering. Jesus suffered more than anyone. And so when we go to him, he doesn't say, oh, I've heard about your suffering, that must have been so bad. He says, I know your suffering, for I suffered it too, So let's reread verses 5 to 10 with Jesus in mind. Could you picture Jesus saying these things? Now David didn't know this part of the story yet, but God in his wisdom has recorded them so that all people at all times and all places have a high priest who knows. So let's imagine Jesus praying this prayer. Verse 5, my enemies speak maliciously, about me when will he go away and be forgotten when will he die can you imagine the Pharisees the political opponents of Jesus saying this of him when is this itinerant preacher gonna run his course like all the others have when are the crowds gonna realize that he's just a charlatan when are we gonna be done with this Jesus character Jesus heard these malicious cries from his opponents. Verse six, when one of them comes to visit me, he speaks deceitfully, and he stores up evil in his heart and goes out and talks. What did Jesus call some of his opponents? You brood of vipers. This is what Jesus saw. He saw that people were coming to him seemingly to have honest debate and dialogue, but he saw through it. He realized that in their heart it was filled with evil and jealousy and contempt for him. And he saw right through it. He knows what that feels like for people to lie to his face with ill motives. Okay, look at verse 8. All the people hate. They whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Verse 8, they say things like, something awful has overwhelmed him and he won't rise again from where he lies. Think about it. There were people, if you read the Gospels, that were claiming that Jesus had demon. That this is the way he was performing all his miracles because they couldn't explain it any other way. It's kind of a hard argument because he seems like quite a lovely guy. He doesn't represent in the way that other demoniacs did. But, but they got to say something because they see the power and they see the miracles. And so they would say he has a demon. Something evil has overwhelmed him. So probably we can't get rid of him. He doesn't seem to be going away. Let's plot and scheme his demise. And they succeed. And they arrest him on false charges. They bring him before a kangaroo court. And they eventually hang him on a cross. When will he die? When will he die? And eventually he breathes his last. And they take his body down from the grave, lifeless. And they say, he won't rise again from this one. Verse 9. How did he get there? Verse 9 says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, even he raised his heel against me. We talked about this last week. There was this wine that Judas drank, the wine of greed... And for 30 pieces of silver, he sold his friend Jesus out to his enemies. Jesus knows the pain of this psalm. He knows the physical pain. He knows the relational pain. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back by his friend who he broke bread with just hours earlier. Jesus knows our suffering. The gospel is a story of life through suffering, not life around suffering, not life despite suffering, but life through suffering. And you could imagine Jesus praying Psalm 10, but you, Yahweh, you, Father, you, Lord, be gracious, be merciful to me, and raise me Not take the cup away. Jesus did pray that prayer and God said no, this is your cup. This is your suffering. And he accepts it but prays God raise me up. And on the third day, that wine that God gave Jesus brought him back to life three days later. It's a beautiful reminder that there's nothing that God is doing to hide this strange reality, that his presence comes near to us through suffering. Like that's the way to true eternal forever life, which is what the psalmist says that he gets in verse 12. The psalmist, read that with me, verse 12. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. And I've wrestled with this. Are we just talking moralistically here about just being a truth teller and not lying? I think there's more to it than this. I think what God is revealing to us and what David is revealing to us is that it was through the suffering, through the pain, through the cries and the weeping of all the different types of pain that it is, you could say, because of those things, that his faith in God, his trust in God, was established. Not necessarily born, because I think it was there, but it was established. It, it It was made sure. It was proved out. It was purified. It was refined. It was taken to another level, you could say, because of the suffering and the pain And what he's saying when he says, you've seen me and supported me and raised me up because of my integrity, I think what he's saying is the integrity of my faith and my trust. Because through it all, I did not turn my back on you. I did not blame you. I did not say, you are a bad God. But I said, you are a good father, come what may. So because of my integrity, you have supported me. Which is to say, because my faith was true, And honestly, I don't often think without suffering we'd know if our faith is true. We don't know if we have integrity when we say God is good, if we've always had good. But when we have bad and we say God is good, there is an integrity that is revealed about our faith. That's my story. I would have told you until the day Kim died, that I had faith and trust in Jesus, and I knew He could raise people from the dead, and I knew He could heal, and all this stuff. But then, when my sister died, my test or my faith was put to the test. Did I truly believe it? Did I have integrity in it? And God came near to me and met me in my pain in a way I've never experienced God, which is why I often call that day the worst day of my life and the best day of my life. It was a hard, good day because I knew God was real. I knew he was near, even though I was in deep agony. So I think that's what the psalmist is saying, that in my worst moments I did not turn from you. When I say you are good, when I say I trust you, when I say I love you, even when I don't understand you, I am speaking truth. So for that reason, Our suffering, our pain, should not be ignored, should not be minimized, should not be maligned because God is using it for something far greater than the moment we live in. So because we were talking about suffering and sickness and illness, I I owe a lot of what I'm about to say next to my wife. She saw my under-preparation (laughs) and she said, Just without me even asking, she just started doing research on this stuff. And so last night, we were talking about pain and suffering, and she was sharing stories from the hospital, because she's a nurse at Seattle Children's Hospital, so she walks with a lot of people going through pain and suffering. And at one point in the conversation, I just stopped and I said, would it be true to say that in your experience, when you watch um, Christian parents suffer alongside their children that they suffer in a more profound, better way than other parents? You see the question I'm asking? Like, I think I want to believe that is what I was saying to her, but is that actually true? Okay. And I love my wife because she was so honest. She said this, eh... Not so fast, she said. She said, I wouldn't say it that way because she says, I, got, I get a lot of families who are not religious or not Christian at all who come in, and I get a lot of families who do claim to be Christians. But honestly, sometimes the families who claim to be Christian are some of the worst sufferers I have ever seen. She said, not so fast. She'd say, she said, I would say it this way. I thought this was so Profound," She said, I would say that it is in watching them in the midst of their suffering that I see the reality of their faith revealed. I thought, whoa. So you, you couldn't actually know the difference until the suffering got bad. And then you watched the way they responded in their suffering that revealed the faith that was either there or not there? She said, yeah. I said, wow. So, leaning into this psalm and learning to pray this psalm and learning to be honest with the pain will actually reveal to the world as well as to ourselves the trueness of our faith, the integrity of our faith, the authenticity of our relationship with God. Wow. And so the other thing that she brought to me that I wanna share with you just to close is she introduced me to um, a husband and wife, Catherine and Jay Wolf. And it's somebody that she follows on Instagram. And and Catherine, when she was 26 years old, suffered a brainstem stroke, just out of the blue. Um, and was just profoundly disabled because of it and uh, I'm going to show a video of her in just a second and half of one side of her face she no longer has movement she can't hear out of one ear she can't walk and they started a ministry in the aftermath of all of this called Hope Heals and she's spoken uh, at some pretty big uh, venues around you may, you may recognize her I've heard of her she's written now uh, in conjunction with her husband, Jay, two books, and um, one is called Suffer Strong, and, and Allie was reading me some quotes and showing me some clips, and I was just blown away by the faith of this woman. Um, so let me read one quote, or two quotes for you, and then we'll watch her in her own words, and then I'll wrap it up with some closing comments but here's somebody who has experienced suffering and continues to experience suffering. That's so important to remember. God doesn't always just fix everything in the moment. And here's what she says. She says, our lives, I believe, are beautiful stories. Somehow, some way, that God is writing. And a story has what? Chapters. And some chapters can be really bad, but it's still a beautiful story. And our lives being a story takes the pressure off the moment. Because a moment may be terrible. It may really hurt. But that is not the full story. God made us to do hard things in the good story that he is writing. In our world today, we have this really false assumption that we can't handle things too much, too hard, and I think we really, uh, sorry, I think we aren't really as fragile as we think we are. We are actually more capable than we think because of this reality that it is a story that God is writing, not just a moment. And the great things about stories, the great thing about stories is things change in stories. And so she goes on in another place, I forget if it's in her book or in a talk she gives, and she, she says this, she says, life and suffering are an assignment. She says, you know, I think we can engage life differently. I don't know if you have ever thought of your life as an assignment but I think that changes changes how we see our stories and our lives. When I think that I am on an assignment from God for this story, for his story, I get to live this story really well. Whatever it looks like, whatever are the specific boundary lines of my story, whatever it looks like, and I live it really well, and honor God who has assigned it to me. I think that is a game changer. That is the truth of the Psalms, for example. And then she says, Psalm 16, verse 6. She says, we can tell our, uh, tell our, he- our own heads and hearts that this is a good, hard life that I'm living. And the, and the Psalm that she referenced is actually a Psalm that I referenced last week. So turn with me to Psalm 16. I thought this was so delightful, the connection that was made. So last week, we in Psalm 17, it talks about men of the world whose portion is in this life. Do you remember that? And then I said, now look at Psalm 16, because Psalm 16, verse five and six says this, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me. So she's saying, my story has boundary lines. They've fallen for me. But you are my portion. And they may fall, this psalm says, in pleasant places, or they may fall in unpleasant places. But you have chosen them for me. Indeed, verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance. No matter where your boundary line falls, when you say, I'm gonna accept my portion, my cup, whether that's suffering or blessing in this life, I accept the portion which is the presence of God in my life. And when I do that, she's saying, and the psalmist is saying, I can be full in every chapter, whether that's a good chapter or a hard chapter and that's our life. A good story with mixed chapters, and God is in it all if we let him be in it all. So I'm gonna show you the video, and then I'll close this up.
1: Many in this room have no doubt been through nearly unspeakable tragedies. Hard suffering has come and hit, at least the inside of you for some of us, hard stuff at the outside early. Maybe not yet. The reality is we live in a world where really hard things happen every day. So there I was as a 25-year-old girl, perfectly able-bodied, no health problems, no medical history of any kind. Newly married to my college sweetheart and with a little baby until I was just having a great life. No big issues. And next picture in the middle there is 26 years old. Massive brain stem stroke out of absolutely nowhere due to a birth defect I did not know I had. Um, subsequent to that stroke, a 16-hour brain surgery to save my life, and much great suffering for the next several years. I um, have had 12 major surgeries since my stroke. I've taken numerous extremely bad falls, including ones that have left me with a broken leg, broken ribs, um, a torn ACL, I've had just a, a lot of really hard brain stuff. I have ongoing neurological brain issues that they're monitoring. Um, you know, it's, it's been rough. I would love to tell you, I had this terrible thing happen to me, but now it's all coming up roses, hallelujah. And that honestly would not be the truth. It's been rough and will likely continue to be rough while I'm on earth. So maybe right now, for all of us, it is worth considering. How do we get to that finish line? What do we want it to look like when we get there? You have stunning capacity to do incredibly hard things. I feel like I'm ignoring you. You have stunning capacity to endure incredibly hard things because of Jesus, in your story you are not nearly as fragile as everything in this world is telling you that you are you can endure very very hard things you know some people spend their whole lives looking for the miracle don't they the miracle in their story but they miss the miracle right in front of them let's look at me So, did I get the miracle? I am profoundly disabled. My hand doesn't work well. My face is paralyzed. I can't walk. I can't drive a car. I have terrible double vision. I'm seeing you guys, and then I'm seeing a blurry image of you guys all up here while I'm talking. I'm deaf in this ear. I could go on and on. I have so many health problems. And yet, I survived a massive stroke and should have died. The doctors thought I would never recover. So did I get the miracle? Yeah, yes, I did, absolutely. But you know what? The miracle is that I have eyes to see it that way, that I recognize this is a miracle of God. Guys, we cannot control what happens to us. We cannot. But we have complete control over what now? Over how we respond to what has happened to us. Do you know this? We get to decide how we move forward after what stuff happens. We decide how we think about it, how we remember it, how we narrate it, how we carry on after what happens. May you see your life as a good, hard story that God Himself is writing. May you open your hands to release old dreams and receive new ones. May you find that the miracle you've been looking for is is and has been right in front of you all along may you accept the stunning capacity you have to endure because of Jesus who endured for you.
0: You have the capacity to endure because you have Jesus who endured for you. I think this is in her book. She, says, she quotes from Psalm 43, talking about how we often find the greatest treasures in the dark. Sorry, not Psalm 43. Isaiah 43. I think we have that. George put it up. Isaiah forty-three or 45, verse 3 says this. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord. I am the God of Israel who calls you by your name. It's been the experience of my life. I know... For Catherine, it's been her experience. And I know many of you can attest to this. And I would encourage you to to tell this story, that sometimes it's in the darkest moments of your life, the darkest places of your life, that the greatest treasure is found. The greatest treasure is often found in the dark place, in the valley of the shadow of death. When you realize, even though you can't see God because it's dark, you know He is with you. And to know that God is with you, to know that He is real, to know that He will never leave you or forsake you is the greatest treasure you could ever find. And if it takes darkness, if it takes secret places, if it takes tragedy, if it takes pain to find that treasure, then it is all worth it to know God. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9 says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We, have, we are struck down, but not destroyed. And then Paul goes on just a few verses later to say, to say Therefore, verse 16, Therefore, We do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen... Is eternal. Let's pray.